Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, L.A. Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlon, concludes his series of discussions on the several operas inspired by Beaumarchais' trilogy of plays about Figaro the Barber. Here, he considers The Ghost of Versailles by composer John Corleano and librettist William M. Hoffman. This opera is a deeply imaginative reinvention of Beaumarchais' third play, The Guilty Mother, in which we re-meet the same somewhat sadder and wiser characters 20 years later after Figaro's wedding day. This is James Conlon. Occupying an enormous space, both in the original play and in the opera, is Figaro's antagonist, Major Bejars. He was formerly the Count's secretary during his time as ambassador. The author describes him as a devious man, a great schemer, and an accomplished troublemaker. His literary model is clear, Moliere's infamous Tartuffe. Should the public have missed that, Beaumarchais spells it out in the title, calling the play at first the New Tartuffe. Throughout the trilogy, Figaro has always had, and needs in order for there to be a plot, an adversary, a nemesis. Bejars, through his aptitude for intrigue and with the same oily hypocrisy of Moliere's creation, has positioned himself to marry Florestine, the Count's daughter, and walk away with the family fortune. Only Figaro sees through him and battles until the last scene of the play to finally outwit him. He derives his name from one of Beaumarchais' most notorious enemies, a lawyer named Bergas, with whom he was embroiled in a long and highly public debate, which, though he ultimately won the case, damaged both his reputation and his finances. The real-life Bergas is repaid for his efforts by the inclusion of a thinly-veiled caricature as the villain and evil genius of the Mère Coupable. Incidentally, this was not the first time Beaumarchais took it out on one of his lawyer enemies. The stuttering Don Curzio, remembered from the third act of Figaro, Salalite, oh, p- p- Carlo, oh, sposarlo, oh, Ramutite. Your spirit. I've been 
sposa sua vuole un uomo che adora. Eccellenza, m'appello. È giusta la sentenza. Può pagar, può sposar. Bravo, Don Curzio. Bontà di sua eccellenza. Che superbo sentenza. Che superba. Sia tutti vendicati. Io non la sposerò. La sposerai. Was in Beaumarchais' play Don Guzman Bidoison, who in turn was based on the real life lawyer Valentin Guzman, with whom our hero had been in another extended notorious legal conflict. Beaumarchais, with his sharp wit, thus avenged himself on his enemies in these plays. Corigliano's Béjance is rightfully not an innocuous comical character as is Mozart's Don Curzio, but a cross between a villain and a satiric caricature of a villain. The music's grotesquerie resembles a 20th century Iago. This is the show-stopping aria of the worm. Particularly noteworthy, aside from the strenuous demonic delivery of evil by the tenor, is the use of the synthesizer to illustrate the slithering reptile as it crawls about, symbol of evil, that constantly renews itself. Edgar Allan Poe, Alfred Hitchcock, perhaps with a touch of Mel Brooks. Devouring sea and plain, 
The lion dies, the eagle dies, and man dies. But the worm lives on eternally. Long live the worm. As we can see, Beaumarchais was no stranger to conflict and managed to get into legal and political trouble on an international stage. To return to his role and assistance to the American Colonial Army, I offer a possible explanation for why his services were not sufficiently recognized in the recounting of our nation's history. The fact is, he was never paid for the arms he had delivered, though he fought for payment for 20 years until his death in 1799. His wife and survivors fought, and eventually his daughter and grandson traveled to Washington in 1835. The U.S. Congress made an offer, 800,000 francs or nothing, despite the fact that Beaumarchais had laid out several million. They accepted and returned to France with a fraction of what was owed. 36 years after Beaumarchais' death, and almost 50 years since the transferal of the arms. It should be noted that both Thomas Jefferson and John Jay recognized the rectitude of Beaumarchais' claim and urged payment. Alexander Hamilton, charged with studying the calculations, concluded that he was owed 2,280,000 francs. In 1870, the American minister to France gave a concluding summation. Quote, to him, more than any other person, belongs the credit of making Louis XVI comprehend the political importance of aiding the colonies in their struggle. He planned and executed how the aid was extended, sent the first munitions, at a time when it was certain that without such aid, the colonists must have succumbed. End of quote. 
American historian James Breck Perkins observed in the first decade of the 20th century, quote, It is sad to reflect that almost everyone who attempted business relations with our country at the time of the revolution ended in bankruptcy. How to define him, this French Renaissance man. Wikipedia introduces him as follows. Watchmaker, inventor, playwright, musician, diplomat, spy, publisher, horticulturist, arms dealer, satirist, financier, and revolutionary, both American and French. Corigliano's and Hoffmann's Figaro lays it out for us in this brilliant virtuoso display. As you will hear, Figaro starts with a lament that people are jealous of him. They wish you could kill me. They wish you could stop me. They hate me. They loathe me. Tell me why do they torment me so? They're jealous. They're jealous. They're jealous. They're jealous. They're jealous. You will remember Figaro's long monologue from Beaumarchais's marriage, and this is a transposition of similar sentiments. Beaumarchais was indeed the object of savage attacks throughout his life. A document written in his hand, which came to light after his death, details much of his life's activities. It seems he attempted to explain why he had so many enemies. Of course, there are always two sides— this is his side. I will quote it in part to show you that this aria is not far from the mark. From the period of my thoughtless youth, I have played every instrument, but I belonged to no body of musicians, and professors of the art detested me. I have invented some good machines, but I did not belong to the body of engineers, and they spoke ill of me. I composed verses, songs, but who would recognize me as a poet? I was the son of a watchmaker. Not caring about the game of lotto, I wrote some pieces for the stage. But people said, what is he interfering with? 
he is not an author, for he has immense speculations and enterprises without number. I have treated with ministers on the subject of great points of reform of which our finances were in need. But people said, what is he interfering in? This man is not a financier. Struggling against all the powers, I have raised the art of printing in France by my superb editions of Voltaire. But I was not a printer, and they said the devil of me. I have traded in the four quarters of the globe, but I was not a regular merchant. I had forty ships at sea at one time, but I was not a shipowner, and I was calumnated in all our seaports. And nevertheless, of all Frenchmen, I am the one who has done the most for the liberty of America, the begetter of our own. For I was the only person who dared to form the plan and commence its execution in spite of England, Spain, and even France. But I did not belong to the class of negotiators, and I was a stranger in the Bureau of the Ministers. What was I, then? I was nothing but myself, and myself I have remained, free in the midst of fetters, calm in the greatest of dangers, making head against all storms, directing speculations with one hand and war with the other, as lazy as an ass and always working, the object of a thousand calumnies, but happy in my home, having never belonged to any set, either literary or political or mystical, having never paid court to anyone, and yet repelled by all. Here, in a more jocular vein, is Figaro's, so to speak, CV. Musically, it is a mixture of Rossini and American musical theater. And here is a preview of the text, which flies by at the speed of light. I've been diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette, student and swordsman, spy and musician. I've been satirist, pessimist, surgeon and Calvinist, Spanish economist, clockmaker, pharmacist, veterinarian, egalitarian, heathen, comedian, pious tragedian. I've been orator, poet, and pirate and prophet, a man for the ladies, and father of babies, drunken and sober, a husband and sailor, banker and barber, a brother and lover. I've been diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette, student and swordsman, spy and musician I've been satirist, pessimist, surgeon and Calvinist, Spanish economist, clockmaker, pharmacist, Veterinarian, egalitarian, healing comedian, pious tragedian. I've been orator, poet, and pirate, and prophet, a man for the ladies, and father of babies, drunken and sober, a husband and sailor, banker and barber, and brother and lover. A diplomat, acrobat, teacher of etiquette, student and swordsman, inspired musician, satirist, pessimist, surgeon and Calvinist, Spanish economist, clockmaker, pharmacist, veterinarian, egalitarian, healing comedian, pious Virginian, poet, a poet, a pirate, a prophet, a man for the ladies and father of babies, drunken and sober, a husband and sailor, banker and barber and brother and lover. 
been said that Figaro is modest, nor did many say it of Beaumarchais. Still, at its rowdy, triumphant ending, a moment upon which to reflect. And now I'm a failure. I've seen everything, done everything, had everything, and lost everything. Of what are they jealous? No matter what one reads into the character of Beaumarchais, he was a deeply enigmatic and ambiguous individual, loved and hated, trusted and mistrusted, vain but humble, opportunistic yet deeply loyal, pugnacious and ready to fight, and quick to take umbrage. He transformed himself from humble origins to one who, already by his early twenties, began to stride through the corridors of power in half of Europe. By adding de Beaumarchais to his name, he treated himself to the perfume of aristocracy, even as it emitted the odor of a nouveau riche to the class to which he aspired. Bathed in the 18th century French Enlightenment, he was a prototype of the 19th century entrepreneurial spirit, which was the dynamo of the Industrial Revolution. He was the Homo Universalis, who became the Homo Novus, the new man of the future. In the fantasy tale of the ghosts of Versailles, Corigliano's Beaumarchais reinvents his Figaro again in order to reinvent himself and history. In the moving final scene, after Marie Antoinette reaffirms her acceptance of her fate as history decreed it, she and Beaumarchais appear in a Wagnerian transfiguration, reminiscent of the Flying Dutchman, bathed in the shining A major of Lohengrin's Holy Grail.
in the words of David Howard, British translator of the Figaro Trilogy. Quote, But whether or not Beaumarchais was a devout capitalist, the begetter of the revolution, or the most hands-on practitioner of enlightenment tolerance, has long ceased to matter. For while the particular battles he fought are now forgotten, the same war goes on. Against officialdom, the corporate coziness of privilege, the constraints on freedom, and the abuse of power. Beaumarchais does mock with the corrosive comedy of derision, but with a gaiety rooted in the exhilarating spirit of joyful reconciliation which crowns the marriage of Figaro. His voice is unmistakable, pugnacious but vulnerable, embattled yet endlessly engaging, and still able to hit nails squarely on the head. Unquote. He fought injustice, at least as he perceived it, until the end of his life. This man, who had been on so many adventures, traveled under dangerous conditions, indomitable whether spending time in jail or in exile, who went in and out of political favor and up and down in the court of public opinion, should have died in battle or on some mission of espionage. On the 18th of May, 1799, after an apparently relaxed and light-hearted evening with his family in Paris, he passed away peacefully in his sleep, seven months short of the 19th century. This beautiful, haunting interlude, written in the manner of Mahler and Bernstein, proceeds to walk in the valley of death. It evokes the night during which Marie Antoinette and the prisoners await their fate. It would also serve excellently as an elegy, an homage to Beaumarchais. In the year before his death, he wrote a letter to the Minister of the Interior regarding the feasibility of aerial navigation, which he believed was possible. Imagine, what if he had brought that abundant spirit, intellectual energy, and life force into the new century, just for another few years? What if? 
What If? This is James Conlon. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.